We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, in, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have called us to worship you this day. We pray that your spirit would be on us, that he would equip us to receive your word with gladness, that we would be quick to turn from our sins as they are exposed in the reading and preaching of your word, and that we would see the glorious hope that we have through Christ. I pray that we would find strength in him today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So it is a joy to be with you folks this morning. It's a great honor and privilege to uh, be filling the, pastor, uh, the pulpit for Pastor Prusik today. Our prayers are uh, with you all and uh, with him and his family today as well. So as we begin our sermon today on 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, the title is A Church, A Spiritual People, A Spiritual Calling. And as... We transition into this. I'd like to begin with a thought, really a trend that has been bothering me for a while, which is that within, among Christian conservatives over the past couple of years, there has been a, a pattern that has very much started to bother me, and that is they are migrating away from the West Coast. I'm not sure how many of you have noticed this great migration of people leaving Washington. I'm guessing it's happening down here in Oregon, at least from western Washington and western Oregon. Many people are fleeing to Idaho uh, or uh, Wyoming, but it also seems that really any red state will suffice. And um, I'm really glad that you guys are all still here and you've stuck it out. (laughs) But it was a couple months ago that I met a strange family. They had actually moved to Washington from Texas. And as I began to talk with his family, uh, uh, trying to figure out what it was, I asked them, was it the liberal politics? And they said no. Uh, But in conversation, it turned out that we had a shared love for the Pacific Northwest. We love all of the scenery. We love all of the beautiful summer weather. And all of the things that there are to do out here, it is really, truly a great part of the country. And as I, this conversation with these friends progressed, I began thinking how sad it is that many conservatives have just given up so easily. 
After all, if we would just continue for a couple more generations having lots of babies and uh, raising those babies right and baptizing those babies and uh, raising up to be the right kind of people, we could have the Northwest back. And this has been a little bit of a crusade that I've gone on in, as far as trying to convince people to stay, not to leave. We need people here in the Pacific Northwest. And a little bit more seriously, though, I do wonder, as Christians specifically move away, I wonder what is going to happen to our witness out here. Some people for sure need to stay because the unbelieving world needs us as a testimony to Jesus Christ and to his gospel. And his church needs a presence out here, even if it seems like it is becoming more and more difficult to live here. And so the truth is, in reality, when I have these conversations, I I, I recognize that not everyone is called to stay. There are circumstances that will legitimately draw people uh, out to places like Idaho or off to Texas, Within the last couple months, we, had, we did have a deacon who's moved out to Idaho, and we have another uh, formative family in our church who moved to North Carolina, and I, I, I blessed them as they went. And, they, you know, that is between them and God, uh, what he has for them. And I pray that they will be faithful there, and I know that they will be a blessing, because really, people everywhere need Jesus. But for those of us who do choose to stay, who feel called to stay, We are going to have to double down in our calling as Christians, because there will be difficulties. There are difficulties, and it seems like there are only going to be more of them as the years progress. The passage that we have before us in 1 Peter uh, was written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who are living in a hostile culture. And Peter's letter is written to be an encouragement to them to help them live faithfully in that hostile culture. And certainly the particulars of their circumstances were different. And I would guess that the difficulties that they faced were probably more difficult than the ones that we're facing here. Um, But possibly on par with what may be to come in the years ahead. But with that said, Peter's... Whether or not we have more or less difficult circumstances with them, I think the counsel that Peter gives them applies to us, whether or not, regardless of the level of difficulty. Because what he does is specifically in these words of encouragement, is he points them toward their identity and calling as the church, as a source of encouragement amid these difficult times, amid a difficult and hostile culture. So as we turn to this passage this morning, we'll see that Peter is showing us that the church is a spiritual people with a spiritual calling. And my hope for this morning is that Peter's encouragement to those first century Christians will be an encouragement to you as well. And that as we, as we consider your identity and your calling as the church, you will be strengthened to face whatever circumstances you may face. Now, children here this morning, I'd encourage you as you listen to this sermon to specifically listen for what what the Apostle Peter is teaching us about the church. Listen for different ways that he describes it and different things that he says that the church is supposed to be doing. 
And so as we look at this passage, we will see that uh, there are really five distinct features of the church that Peter provides to help us understand both her identity and calling. So there will be three points on the church's identity, and then two points on the church's calling. And so the first of the church's identity is that the church is a people who are united through faith to Christ. And it's always so important to begin with definitions. Uh, Because, and so as we're speaking of the church, it's important that we establish that the church is the people of God. But not just any people. They're those who are united to Christ through faith. We see this in verse 4, where Peter opens a section by saying, coming to him. And we'll notice that this whole passage is laden with all this metaphorical, spiritual language. And probably one of the most difficult things about this text is getting beyond the, the, the images and the metaphorical language to figure out what is the reality that Peter is getting at. And so when he says, coming to him, he's talking about uh, the people uh, coming to Jesus. Coming to Christ. And what is the nature of that coming to Jesus? Well, those of us who know the scripture know that there is only one way to come to Jesus. And that is through faith. Uh, And this could be inferred from just uh, the the general scope of scriptures. It's made abundantly clear throughout the gospels. Uh, Right now, on Sunday afternoons up in Olympia, I'm preaching once a month. Uh, through different encounters that Jesus has with different people. And the one theme that seems to thread all of these different encounters together is that the people come to him in faith. And so here we see that coming to him, this has to be done in faith. And the passage makes this clear that that is how we come. Because if we skip forward to verse 6, it says, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And in verse 7, it also says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. So we see that the church is those who are marked by faith, who come to Christ in faith, and who are united to him through faith. But let's back up and and think about this statement, that the church is people who believe, and through their belief are united to Christ. I hope we know that the church is not a building, that, that though buildings are great, they can be an immense blessing to a church. They can ground a local congregation in a community. But the church, the building is never the church. And the church is also not our gathering together on the Lord's Day. As much as that is a central part of our identity as church, that we gather on the Lord's Day to worship Him, that is not the church. The church is fundamentally the people. But as I said, not just people, but people who believe. And this passage doesn't just tell us that, they are, that the church is people who believe, but it actually describes the very nature of that belief. It at least gives us three characteristics of that belief. First, it shows us that the, that belief identifies personally with Christ. In verse 4 through 5, we see that this language of living stones and how Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And we see that this language of a building that has been erected, a building that is being structured, and Christ is at the center of it. Now, I'm not an expert in the uh, um, in architectural structures of antiquity, but I think I get the idea of a cornerstone. 
a cornerstone is just that first stone which is laid, which is so crucial to the whole rest, because if that gets laid wrong, the entire rest of the building will fall apart. But whether we understand all of the intricacies of that structural piece, what is, uh, what is so clear is that Christ is the most important stone of this building that is being brought together, and those who believe are a part of that building. So those who believe are personally so united with Christ, it's this one structure. But the belief that marks Christians not only personally identifies with Christ, it is also a, a belief that clings to him as its only hope. In verse 6 we read, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Those who have put their faith in Christ know that they have no other hope in this life. That if it were not for Christ, they would be lost in the shame and the destruction of their sin. And that there was no other hope in this life. This passage also makes clear that the belief not only is one that identifies personally with Christ and, and clings to him for hope, but it is a faith that views Jesus as precious. In verse 7 it says, Therefore, to you who believe... He is precious. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our King. And those who believe Him know that. And know that there is no greater treasure in life than to know Him as your God and King. And, so, and this is the kind of faith that marks the people who are the church. And it is this faith that then unites the people of the church to Christ. In verses 6 through 8, there is an idea from the Old Testament that is mentioned in verse 4, being developed of a further development of Christ being the cornerstone. And as we read about this building, we are the living stones in this building. And then it's interesting, in verse 6 through 8, it shows that the, the anticipated Messiah who we know is Christ was rejected. And this seems a little strange. How is this supposed to be an encouragement? We know that this church has been facing difficulties. We know that this church is living in a culture that seems opposed to them at every level. And now Peter is pointing out that their king, that their Messiah, that their Savior is one who was rejected. But he presents this as a source of comfort. And the question is, why is this comforting to know that the Messiah was rejected? And furthermore, not just that he was rejected, but that those who identify with him will be rejected as well. well Peter goes on to show that just as Christ was rejected, so they will be rejected. But likewise, as they identify with Christ, that he was chosen by God and precious, and so are they. So as we identify with Jesus, both in his rejection, so we identify with Christ in being chosen by God. And Peter turns that rejection, that turmoil, that difficulty in a culture that on so many levels opposes them, into a comfort. Because as you experience that, you should be reminded that Jesus experienced that too. And just as you experience his rejection with him, so you uh, experience his acceptance before God is perfect and holy as well. And I think we need to hear that. 
I think we out here living in a difficult culture in a difficult time need to stop feeling as bad for ourselves as we often feel. Because we need to remember that as Christians, as those who are united to Christ through faith, we should be expecting to be in opposition to the world. Just this morning I was reading Psalm 2 with my children. And we were talking through that about how the world is naturally enemies with God. And we can't forget this. We do not live in the consummated uh, kingdom. We live in between two ages. And yes, uh, the, 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 the king has come, but his kingdom has not uh, been fully established. And until that happens, we should expect the unbelieving world to oppose us. And we shouldn't flee from it, but rather we should strive to be faithful in it. And knowing that as we face difficulties, that there is great comfort in being united to Christ, who himself was rejected, but chosen in God. So as the first characteristic of the church was that they are people who are united through faith to Christ, Peter also is encouraging the church by reminding them that they are a people chosen by God. In verse 9 we see the phrase where it says, you are a chosen race. And that points to the doctrine of election and predestination. And it's not really a doctrine that's fully developed in this text. And so I'm not going to go there either. I'm going to assume that uh, Pastor Prusik has done his work in teaching you about the doctrines of grace and the, and the glorious doctrines of knowing that God from eternity past uh, chose some for salvation and that those who have been chosen in him are absolutely secure in their salvation. But what I would like to focus on as we think of this election, doctrine of election, of predestination thinking about some of the implications and applications for the church's identity. And one thing you'll notice, that any time in Scripture that you see an extended amount of treatment on the doctrine of predestination or election, passages such as Ephesians 1 and 2 or Romans 9, that's not very far off that the core identity of the church is also being addressed. Because when we think about election, what it is, is this is God drawing together, not just individuals who then happen to gather in a place together, but it is God's work of creating a people who are drawn together in his good and precious providence. And we can't forget that. Not just are individuals chosen, but God is forming a people, a chosen people. And so it is often... Um, Reformed folks are often refused of having their heads in the clouds or being brains that just, uh, we uh, treating people like just brains that are floating around that are disembodied, or that really our talk about predestination isn't really practical. But that is so far from the truth. There are so many practical applications in thinking about how, how our understanding of God's electing love transforms not just the way we understand God, but understand ourselves, understand our place in the world. And likewise, it also transforms our view of the church. Now, I have lots of wonderful Arminian brothers and sisters in Christ. And I truly love them and admire them. And oftentimes... I feel like they put me to shame in their love for Jesus. And they, they love their Bibles and they know their Bibles. Many of them, not all of them. 
However, one thing I often notice when I speak to my Armenian brothers and sisters in Christ is that when we speak about the church, the church is often seen as little more than a voluntary association. It's a place where people happen to gather together. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. We may as well have a time in which we get together and do Christian things. They seem to miss the point that there is this bigger picture thing that I was talking about a minute ago, of God calling a people to himself. So as we look around this room, as you look at one another, it is no accident that each one of you in this room are here. But as a work of God's good and precious providence, he has been knitting you together as the Columbia Bible Presbyterian Church, as a people to accomplish his work here in Scapoose, Oregon, or wherever you may be in the surrounding area. I don't know how geographically spread out you are as a congregation. In Olympia, we're very geographically spread out. But nonetheless, as part of God's electing work, he has, he has brought you here together as a people, as his witness in this area. And don't lose sight of that. Take encouragement in it, knowing that God is working among you, that he has brought you together to accomplish something, that he has a work that he wants you to do. Another practical application, and as we think of predestination, is it should be an encouragement in our evangelism. So often the accusation against Calvinists is that, they, uh, that their doctrine of predestination undermines evangelism. But that is absolutely the complete opposite. It should encourage us. It should give us hope in, in our evangelistic efforts. I went back and forth on whether I should reference him. Here's this guy named Mark Driscoll. not sure if you guys have heard of him. He's uh, been kind of out of the public eye up here for almost, almost a decade now, at least eight years. Uh, but for those of you who aren't familiar with him, he was a Seattle pastor who had quite a movement, drew thousands of people in, and then um, in the, though he lacked accountability. In the process of, uh, of um, not how to, having the proper accountability, he was brought under discipline, and then he fled from discipline, and uh, now he's wreaking havoc in another part of our country. But Mark Driscoll did preach the Word of God and in many ways, there were a lot of things that he got right, as much as he wasn't under account. And one of the things that has always stuck with me, he would always talk about Seattle and say, I know that God has elect in this city, so let's go find them. And it stirred this passion in the church to find the elect. And how do you find the elect? You preach the word. You share the good news of the gospel. And those who respond, those who receive it in faith will come. They will hear as the Holy Spirit uses that good news to awaken them and to bring their spirits alive. They will respond. And they are out there. There are elect within Scapus. There are elect in Columbia County. There are elect in Oregon who are just waiting to hear that good news of the gospel, to be drawn into God's church and to be discipled in the church. So let's not uh, let the doctrine of predestination sit on the shelf as something that we pull off to sit at to discuss around uh, fires, but as a, as a doctrine that fires us up, both in our understanding of what God is doing here in knitting the church together and calling us to go outward and find more elect to bring them into God's church. So, Peter has described the church as those who are by faith united to Christ, and the church as those who are chosen by God. 
And he's also described the church as a people who are united together in God. In verse 5, he said, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. In verse 9, he refers to the church as a holy nation. In verse 10, he says, Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. And we see here that as he has chosen and called you together, he has called you together to be a people. Your first and foremost identity should be as the people of God. Your first and foremost allegiance in this life is to one another. Yes, we are Americans, and we have a lot to be grateful for. And there is nothing wrong with being a proud patriot and, uh, and citizen of this country, grateful for the many blessings that come with it. But your first identity as, is as a citizen of the kingdom of God and of your commitment to one another. Not, but not just one another here in this local church, in this, in this local expression of God's church. But also remember that your identity as a, as a member of the church transcends this group here. It is also, you, you are also united to all Christians throughout the world. And you are united to all those who have believed throughout world history. You are truly a part of the greatest kingdom that has ever existed on planet Earth. There is no other kingdom that has ever lasted forever. There's no other kingdom that will last forever, but the kingdom of Christ will. And you are a part of that. And that is where your identity should be. And as as citizens of that kingdom, your first and foremost commitment is to one another here, in this place, to each other, to be knit together. People of the Columbia Bible Presbyterian Church, look around at the people of the church. There is a spiritual reality which knits you together to one another that is much deeper than we often remember. (coughs) Take your commitment, take your responsibilities to one another seriously. Yes, this means being in attendance for weekly worship. Absolutely, do not give that up. But it also means much more. These are not only people that God has redeemed and called together in his divine providence, these are people he has called you to be committed to. These are people he has called you to serve. These are people you are supposed to love. Do you know the people of the church? Do you love the people of the church? Let us not neglect this great calling to be united together as the people of God. So we've seen three characteristics of the church's identity. Those who through faith are united to Christ those who are chosen by God, and also those who are united together in God. But we're going to now transition from who, the identity of the church, to what the church is calling. We are going to see what is the church created for? What is God doing through his church? What what is his purpose in pulling a people together? And so in verse as the first thing we're going to see is that the church is, is a people created to worship God. In verse 5 we read, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 it reads, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as we think about this idea of the, the church of the people created for worship, I'd like to focus in on this piece that Peter comes back to a couple different times in this passage, that we are priests. That we are a nation of priests. That he uses all sorts of priestly language of spiritual sacrifices, a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. So what is Peter getting at in this spiritual language of calling us priests? Well, I think it's helpful just thinking about what did priests do. Uh, priests were those who were set apart to daily bring the people before God. Um, I used to teach the uh, catechism class to the younger people in our church, and uh, every time we would get to the identity of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, we really had to spend some time on the what, what are these different identities of Christ. And, and to flesh that out, we had to look in the Old Testament and see what did the prophets do, and what did the priests do. And while the prophets were those who brought the word of God to the people of God, the priests were those who brought the people of God before a righteous and holy God. So likewise, as priests, we have a responsibility of coming before God. But now we are all called priests. We are called a a nation of priests. And so we need to be clear, though, as we speak of priests offering sacrifices and bringing people to God, that um, this is not the, the sacrifices that we bring on behalf of the people in bringing people to God. These are not propitiatory sacrifices. And by that, what I mean is we are not bringing the sacrifices that make us acceptable to God. Because we, only, we know that there was only one priest who was ultimately able to make that sacrifice. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. So then what is the place of us being called priests? If Jesus was the great high priest who, who brings us before God, who, who offered the one and only propitiatory sacrifice that could make us sinful, filthy people acceptable to a righteous and a holy God, what is then left for us to do? Well, we bring before God sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of our obedience. And we see this very clearly explained in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think of that priestly language. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what he then develops it holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he equates this idea of uh, a living sacrifice with spiritual worship. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on and he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we see that what is this priestly work of bringing sacrifices? It is sacrifices of worship and it is sacrifices of obedience. And these are not two completely separate things, but rather our obedience is always, when in faith, an expression of worship to God. And now when we talk about the idea of obedience, 
especially to Father, there's a lot of different thoughts that come to mind for different people. And unfortunately, for some people, this, even this word of obedience brings up a lot of baggage. There are images that come to mind of a grumpy father who only wants the shouting and the nonsense to stop, to just be quiet, just obey me because I said so. I do not think that that is the primary picture that we have here of the obedience that we are called to. In 1 Peter 1.16, we are told, reminded that God calls us to be holy, for I am holy. And our obedience to God is first and foremost being like Him. So the question is, why does this give God pleasure? What is there that is pleasing about our obedience to God? Why is this worship? Well, if I could offer just a picture of an experience that I had with my youngest son, Edmund, is just a glimpse into how our obedience is pleasing to God. Uh, last summer, I was cleaning out my work van, and it also happened that I was actually meditating on this idea of obedience, and my uh, youngest son, Edmund, was with me. And I was sorting things out of my van. It was towards the end of the season, and I had all sorts of stuff. And Edmund... Oh, I was bringing, no, I was at the beginning of the season. I was bringing stuff down to my van, and Edmund had seen me going back and forth to the van with all this stuff. And as I was loading it up, I realized Edmund was coming down and grabbing things that I had just brought down to put in my van and taking it back up to the garage. And at first there was a temptation to be a little bit annoyed and irked by this, but then I realized what he was doing. He had just been watching me go and back and forth with all of these things, Uh, from the garage to my van, and he was trying to be like me. And I think that is the pleasure that God gets when we are seeking to obey him. It's not an arbitrary, capricious uh, delight that he takes in us, but he delights in us striving to be like him because we see that our ways are so foolish and that true life, true joy, true delight is in being like God, in obeying him. And that brings him glory, and that is worship to him. So we as the church, we are our people created to worship God, called together to worship God. And one of our greatest expressions of obedience is gathering together each day, as we are, each Lord's Day, as we are right now, to, to, to bring express worship to him through our prayers, through our songs of praise, through sitting under his word, through, sit, uh, through listening to his word and receiving good things from him and receiving the sacraments as well. And so that we as a people are marked out not just in our acts of worship through obedience throughout the week, but as we gather together to corporately offer our sacrifice of praise to him as well. But the church isn't only called to be a worshiping people. Only called as priests to bring worship to God. The church is also called to display God's glory to the nations. In verse 5, Peter references us, again, as being these living stones. And think about living stones being brought together to create a structure, and a structure that can be seen. In verse 9, he says, that you, as he's talking about what they are doing, he says, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That language of proclamation. And then in verse 12, he says that, that they, 
that they, even though 12 wasn't in our text, we see he's going to move on here, and that they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. God has called you together as a people. Yes, to be a worshiping people who worship him and glorify him, but also display his glory to the surrounding people. Because when they look on him, when they see you as his church, functioning as his church, as imperfectly as we do it as his church, but nonetheless, there is the testifying power of the work of the Spirit among you, when outsiders see, especially those elect, those elect who have yet to come in, they will see it. And through that, God will use it to testify to his work, testify to himself in this dark and failing world. And there's actually quite a strong picture here. So if we think about this language of the stones, of a temple being erected, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone, us being the stones that fill out this building. We need to think, what, just like we had to think a little bit ago, what, what do priests do? Well, what were, was the temple for? What was the function of the temple? And the temple was a special dwelling place of God. A God who is not physically seen, but whose presence was made, made known through a physical structure. So just as in the, under the Old Covenant, God made his presence known through the temple, so now under the New Covenant, it is through his church that he is making his presence known. Think about it like this. For those who may be seeking Allah, the Muslim God, where do they go? They go to Mecca. For those who may be uh, seeking uh, one of the ancient pagan gods, think of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, where might they turn? They might go to the universities of the world to seek out wisdom. I was looking up to various gods and goddesses of other various false religions and and thinking what are various uh, physical locations where people would go to seek out this god. And one that came up was Kai Shen, a Chinese god of prosperity. And so people might go to the stock markets or to the malls to seek out this god. But the triune god of scripture. Where do people go to meet, to see the triune god of scripture? To his people. His people who have been drawn together, knit together, who are being built up as a body. It is to us, as we serve as a witness to God's glorious goodness and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, that we serve as a witness in this world to the unbelieving world. And this is why we, at least some of us, I know I'm not going to convince all of us, I know some of us have legitimate reasons for going away, but some of us have to stay. And I hope each one of you here are willing to tough it out. Because the Pacific Northwest needs a faithful presence of God's people to continue that work of displaying God's glory and testifying to his work in this world. Columbia Bible Presbyterian Church, receive the Lord's call today to take serious your identity and your calling as the church. You are a people who are united to Christ by faith, who were chosen by God, 
who are being knit together. Knit together as a people for, to worship Him and glorify Him in all of your lives and to come together on the Lord's Day to sing His praise and then to display His glory to this dark, broken, and fallen world. Whether you stay here in the Pacific Northwest for the long haul or you choose to join the Great Migration, may you find strength and encouragement in being part of Christ Church. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are so grateful that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us, that you have uh, brought us out of darkness, not just as individuals, but as a people who are being saved, who are being knit together, and who you are using to accomplish your work and your purposes in this world. I pray that we would find encouragement and strength today. It can be so disheartening to look out the world around us, to see what is taking place, to see what seems like a a culture that is eroding and falling apart. But may we take heart, may we take strength in knowing that you have good and perfect purposes for us, that we are united to Christ, and though we may be rejected by man, that as we experience that rejection on behalf of Christ, we know and take heart that we are chosen by God. In Christ's name we pray.